Hello and welcome to PathPod. I'm Dr. Mike Arnold of Children's Hospital Colorado, and this is our next episode of Beyond the Scope, where we speak with pathologists about their interests in and outside of pathology. Today, I'll speak with Dr. David Kleiner, a senior research physician at the National Institutes of Health, Laboratory of Pathology in the National Cancer Institute. Dr. Kleiner has served as a pathologist in the NIH for more than 30 years and is currently the chief of the postmortem section and the director of laboratory information systems. We'll hear about his collaborations in and outside of the NIH in liver pathology, his interests in animation, and how his work and NIH research on SARS-CoV-2 are contributing to our evolving understanding of COVID-19. David, welcome to PathPots. Nice to see you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, this is a, a nice experience, um, and I'm glad you guys are doing this. Well, it's it's been a, a lot of fun, um, and and I I think one of my favorite things has been to start a lot of these conversations by having people talk about how they got interested in medicine and pathology. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about that. I you know as far as I can remember, you know back to sort of early childhood, I've been interested in medicine. You know the 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 process of healing and the ability to care for people has always been really important to me. Um, and I and I don't really, you know, of course, when I was eight, I didn't really have any idea what that meant. I mean, except for my own encounters with the pediatrician. Um, there are no MDs in my family, except my grandfather was an optometrist. So that was the closest I had come to either science or medicine within within my own extended family. And uh, so then, you know, as I was going through college, I was very interested in science and still interested in medicine and had had kind of the plan to go to medical school. And, and when I when we started to apply for things, I um, heard about MD PhD programs, and they sounded very, very exciting. They sounded like just the sort of thing that I wanted because I'd become very interested in research and science. And there, there was this connection to medicine, which had been this long interest of mine. And so that's, those are the programs that I applied to. And I did get in um, to an MD PhD program at the university of Chicago. And, and then as far as pathology goes, um, so when I was a, let's see, I guess it would have been, more or less a third year medical student. It was like my fifth or sixth year there because of the PhD, but um, there was a, you know, and I was thinking about medicine or oncology, uh, you know, something along those lines, again, because of the research interests and maybe cancer and, but my ideas about that were not very formed. And uh, so, so the, Third, what they had was a kind of a show and tell by the, all of the chief residents in the hospital came and talked to the third year medical students about the different areas, you know, trying to sell their own specialty. And I heard the pathology chief resident, you know, talk about pathology and, and what was involved and its connections to research and forming the foundation of medicine and, you know, all of this. And I went, ah, that's for me. <laughs> That's what I've been looking for, and the light yeah. bulbs went on, and the you know fireworks and everything else, and and so um, that was, 
and then I and then I I did some pathology at the university, um, you know, in my fourth year as electives, and and I was just I was sold right from the beginning. The whole looking through the microscope at the tissue and making diagnoses that was that was for me. So <laughs> that's how I got into it. The other thing I really enjoyed hearing from folks on PathPod is a little bit about their lives outside of work. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about any hobbies or anything in particular, <laughs> especially if there's anything you picked up during the pandemic? Um, yeah, you know, I, I really haven't. I, I've had a number of hobbies over the years. I mean, I like to read a, a science fiction and fantasy um, buff. Um, and so I, I read some, uh, but <laughs> I'm afraid my vice is Japanese animation. <laughs> One thing I like about it that is different from a lot of, of animation in this country is that it's a lot of it's much more like storytelling, right? And of course, like, like storytelling, it's all different genres. It's horror, it's science fiction, it's fantasy, it's, it's drama, it's comedy, it's, it's everything. And I have a lot of it and I watch it frequently and it's my escape from, from everything. Um, everything stressful in my life uh um so that's that's one thing that's that's really truly a hobby um and then you know probably the other other thing and and not meaning to proselytize or anything but i um I'm, we're pretty involved in our church and and i've been leading the adult bible study for 30 years so you know so that that part of me is is also out there and that's that's a kind of a separate um, relief valve from uh, from the stresses of life, and and those things basically continued through the pandemic. Um, you know, the the Bible study just went online. You know, we we did this, we did Zoom meetings, and that was and that was fun, and um, and I and it was actually valuable in ways that had nothing necessarily to do with with you know the Bible. It was just it was. It was great that we could just see each other, right? And, oh, and yeah. talk about things and people, you know, things that were happening in people's lives and because we weren't meeting as a community anymore in person. Um, and this was one way that we could do that. Well, I'm really glad to hear you had that community during the pandemic. And I know that that sort of interaction has been really important to a lot of people. And I can speak personally to the folks that have made PathPod We've really enjoyed connecting with each other and, and people in our field. I'm really interested to hear more about the Japanese comics. Do you collect like comic books or posters or any, any particular have, series of them? Yeah, um, I, it's mostly um, animation. So it's mostly Blu-rays and, and DVDs. And I have several thousand. <laughs> it's one, one thing that something someone can do. You know, I've, I've actually have a data, you know, I'm, so like everything else in my life it's very structured i have a database right i keep track of which ones i've watched um and and i don't know i mean i've watched like like two hundred and fifty thousand hours of <laughs> wow some ridiculous or minutes i'm sorry not hours okay that's a minutes it's of, still a lot it's still a lot um of you know animation and um it's, it's uh you know it's and it's not so much um 
here animation tends to be um every episode is you know a unit and it doesn't necessarily really there's no character development across the series there's you know not much happens but that's in most Jan japanese animation there is character development things happen over the course of the series that change and and so that sort of aspect really appealed to me and made it different from um what we get in in this country um and some of it's quite sophisticated of course just like it is here and beautiful uh so so and i'm i mean this this has been going on for 25 years <laughs> i don't see it ending anytime soon I do have I do have a collection of of manga, which the the comic books, if you will, um, and and now and what they call light novels, which are basically um, uh, not, you know, I, I guess you would consider it. It's about at the same level of young young adult teen kind of literature. It's written at that level for the most part, um, but it's. You know, I think it's it's a little bit different kind of thing in Japan, where basically I think you need to be you're an eighth grader before you can even read the newspaper, right? You know, there's so much, so many characters to learn, and and uh, um, so you know, having novels that are accessible to younger people is they're usually written at a little bit simpler level, but they're fun. Do you read and speak Japanese? No, I listen. I mean, I watch things subtitled and I, you know, okay. I picked up enough over the years that I recognize words and I can, I recognize characters, but I can, I'm not at all a reader. Um, uh, everything's translated in, you know, I mean, I recognize some characters and I can recognize words that are spoken, but you know, if I, if I close my eyes and just listen to the, to the soundtrack, I'll pick up a word here or there, but I couldn't tell you what, what they were saying. So I, that was one of my original thoughts was that I would try to learn the language too, but it just hasn't been time <laughs> too many other things to do. Well, I certainly know you have a lot to keep you busy because I trained with you in the residency program at the NIH. Maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about what that program's like. So we have a small residency program. We take three, three residents a year. Um, we're part of the match like every, everybody else. Uh, we are the only residency program though at the NIH. So uh, while there are trainees, other trainees here, they're, they're mostly fellows uh, who have either they're in the middle of their residency or they finished and they're working on specialty areas. Um, so, you know, because of the weird and wonderful nature of the NIH, uh, we do rotate our residents out to other hospitals to sort of round out their training. Um, and most of our residents tend to be sort of research minded. We, we try to attract those kinds of people because there are so many opportunities here for trainees to become involved in research, to start their own projects, to participate in ongoing research at any level. I mean, they can, they can basically join a lab anywhere on the NIH campus. We've had people do epidemiology projects. We've had people do crystallography. I mean, you know, every, and everything in between. So, um, so from that aspect, it's, it's, it really does give you those, those, 
potential avenues to explore. And, and we take people who have never really done research before, right? The match gives us whoever we match. So um, sometimes we get people who are just want to do research, but really haven't had much experience. And we've turned them into good, you know, academic pathologists um, who carry out projects, you know, in their, in their lives outside the NIH then. So I know a little bit about the NIH, but obviously you know a lot more about the NIH than I do. And I think our, our, our listeners would probably be interested to know a little bit about how the NIH is a different pathology department than most other places. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the, so so what, I, what I tell incoming resident applicants is that the NIH is a weird and wonderful place to work. And, and, I, and I truly believe that. Um, you know, on the one hand, you're, you're kind of at the center of everything. You know, you're, this is the largest biomedical research facility in the world. The, the largest number of hospital beds devoted to research. Um, every patient here comes on a protocol, you know, so, so basically every, every slide I've, I touch, every diagnosis I make and all the projects I involve in are, are all, at least here, are all tied to this ongoing research mission. And so that's the wonderful part of it. Um, and, and you really get to feel part of things. So, um, so a lot of, you know, and, and we deal with a lot of rare diseases. And so you get to see a lot of really neat stuff. The weird part is that this is not a normal hospital by any stretch of the imagination. In you know, we have no emergency room. We have no labor and delivery rooms. Um, we really can't take care of kids under age three, really. Um, we don't have the right personnel. And so that that's a bit limiting but but also this whole idea of protocol related research is it means what it turns into or what it translates to is is that if somebody here wants to study something you see a lot of it and you see the weird things and you see the common things that are part of that um but there might be a field right you know, of that same organ system, say, right next door to that particular field that you never see because nobody's studying it. So, for example, we don't see a whole lot of inflammatory bowel disease here, which is like bread and butter GI pathology everywhere else, because nobody is studying it. Now, we see inflammatory diseases of the bowel, but they're all <laughs> patients who have odd immunodeficiencies, and some of them have, see, you know, IBD-like manifestations, and so you kind of have to know the differences, but it's not quite the same. So, and you, so you don't get that, that sort of random, we take care of everybody, you have a medical problem, we see it sort of thing. So, um, and the other thing is that patients don't pay for their medical care here. So, I mean, that's, a, that's the other part of it, that this whole issue of billing doesn't affect us, but that means our economic model for how we run the department is completely different from every other institution in the world, probably. I remember very clearly one time when we were signing out together and we picked up a tray of slides and we started looking at it. It was an alveolar soft part sarcoma and we were, you know, spending all this time talking about it. Like, oh, this is a really neat case. You won't see a lot of these. 
and we finished looking at that tray. We picked up the next tray, and it was another alveolar soft part sarcoma. Yeah, things come in it's, waves. <laughs> yeah. I was seeing three of those a week for a while, which, you know, it's like 1% or less of all sarcomas, and sarcomas are 1% of all malignancies, and so you're seeing a vanishingly rare. But, you know, those those tumors had a mutation that somebody was interested in that thought they had a targeted therapy for. I don't think it panned out, but that's why we were seeing them. You talked about how the department is kind of structured a little differently from funding. I think research there is also a bit unique in terms of how investigators that are inside the NIH Mm -hmm. get involved in research as opposed to people that are outside of the NIH. Can you talk a little bit about that? That's also kind of an odd system because there are, there's sort of a tenure track investigator system here, like there is at many places. Um, And being tenure track or tenured, what that means is that you you are given a certain dollar amount of support space for laboratory, certain personnel allocations, and you can then pursue your research without worrying about having to apply for grants. Now, there is an evaluation that comes up every few years, which is kind of like applying for a grant, um, but it's not so much based on on it is based on the success that you had that thus far but it's also based on the kinds of things that you'd like to do like like grants are you know plans for what you want to do um but i think it's that it's tipped a little bit more towards how successful you've been the idea the whole idea of this sort of investigator driven research is to encourage people to take more risks which always you know since you're you're, you were judged on success and taking risk necessarily entails failure. It always bothered me that, <laughs> you know, I mean, shouldn't we tolerate a certain amount of failure? But anyway, it, if, if uh, you aren't successful, that's not such a good thing. Um, so there are, there are those people and they can be clinical principal investigators or basic science principal investigators or people with a foot in both camps. Um, and they, they're the ones who kind of control the, the vast majority of research money and space and personnel. And then there are other classes of, of people as well. And I'm, I fall into one of those other classes. So I'm a, um, what, they, what they call a staff clinician, which, which means that I don't theoretically have any independent resources, except that I do because I oversee clinical departments. So, so in that sense, I do have resources, but they're meant for clinical purposes. Um, but at the same time, I'm kind of expected to do collaborative research. And so in pathology, research is not, doesn't necessarily, is not necessarily costly. So, uh, so I can do things at my microscope, I can collaborate with people, I can do that kind of, of of support for clinical trials and get involved in extramural things as well. And in that way, sort of satisfy my own research um, needs, um, my, my scientific um, curiosity and, and the other things that sort of drive us to, to be medical scientists. Um, it's, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit like a clinician educator track in a 
regular university where you know you aren't necessarily independently funded um but you know you find ways to publish papers and do work and become known and and so and i've been i think been reasonably successful at that that model um but it is it it's not quite the same as applying for a grant in a pathology department and getting money and having a lab and people and, and doing things. So there's these these different models of of clinical research and basic research here, um, which also make it it's, it's a little bit difficult for people in universities and, and other places to understand quite how we do what we do, because it's backwards. Yeah, and it's also kind of insulated to people that are inside of the NIH because you can't yes. take that money with you and go somewhere else, right? No, no, yeah. you, no, you can't. I mean, so so postdocs or people who are applying for positions elsewhere, um, you can apply for an NIH grant to start when you get to wherever you're going, but you, we can't. We don't compete for you know those that kind of money, um, and we're absolutely forbidden from getting any of it in any form. So uh, th that would be. What they call double dipping, which is um, not a good thing. So, um, so we're not really in competition with the extramural world, uh, although sometimes it seems like that because there's a big pot of money, of course, that goes to the intramural program and to running the hospital and everything else. So, so I'm really interested to talk to you a little bit about one of your significant projects. I mean, you were the first author of a 2005 paper in hepatology that uh, described um, scoring system for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So yeah. I wanted to talk to you about several aspects of this. Mm -hmm. First of all, kind of how did it come to be that you got involved with with this and, and how did it, you know, what's it like to work to, to build a group that's going to do a consensus kind of study like this? Sure. Um, so that was it. It actually has its beginnings in sort of the late 90s. Um, I don't know if you're, you're probably aware of this, but um, towards the end of the Clinton administration and extending into the, the Bush administration, um, the NIH was, um, Congress had decided to double our budget over five years. So it's a huge bolus of money. And every institute kind of decided, well, how are we gonna use this? money. Um, most of it was supposed to be targeted towards extramural projects. Um, and so every institute was kind of decided on its own. The National Institute of Diabetes, Digestive and Kidney, they oversee all of or most of the liver related research as well as the kidney related research, diabetes and things like that. What NIDDK decided to do was, was use the money to focus research in particular areas that they saw need and were you know important research questions that couldn't be handled by necessarily individual investigators so they created these clinical networks and so in the liver world what they did was they established a couple first things they did was to establish a couple of programs um, in hepatitis c and i had been working with the um, intramural liver group here. Um, and the head of that group was Jay Hufnagel, uh, 
who was also at that point, I think, had an extramural appointment overseeing the whole um, liver program. And so they had come up with this idea and I had been working with them and that and I think partly because they really liked what I was doing and because they the clinical center here was participating in some of these clinical trials or clinical networks. Um, I became involved in a couple of their hep C ones and but fatty liver disease was on the horizon, right? And it was apparent that nobody was really doing much yet with fatty liver disease because everybody's attention was focused on hepatitis C. And so the NIDDK held a workshop and I organized, um, I did the sort of organized the pathology part of that. So I invited, you know, speakers, pathologists from around the country who had written about fatty liver disease. That was and that was only in 1998. And then several years passed. And in 2002, they started this National Clinical Research Network. And what they did was they wrote me into the RFA. They said a pathologist from the NIH will participate as, <laughs> you know, a member of the pathology committee. And so, um, and so that, I was really grateful for that opportunity because I thought this would be a lot of fun. And so we got together and it was me and Beth Brunt, um, Elizabeth Brunt, who was at that time at St. Louis University, um, where the co-chairs were made the co-chairs of the pathology committee. And there was one pathologist from every clinical center who was going to be on this in this group. And uh, so we had our first steering committee meetings and the steering committee, which was mostly, you know, hepatologists, um, turned to us and said, we want you to come up with a system that we can use for to to manage the pathology, um, you know, to put it in a database, use it for clinical trials, natural history studies. So come up with something. And Beth had actually already written a paper uh, describing a system, um, and that was published around that time. Um, and so we got all the pathologists together here at the NIH. Uh, we talked about, you know, well, what kinds of things do we want to look for? And we, you know, and I took notes on a blackboard or whiteboard or something like that. So we came up with with something that we thought we could do with a reasonable number of things. We were like 14 different things we were going to look at and um, th that we thought we could reproduce, right? Because reproducibility was going to be a big part of this because it had to be consistent. And um, so we used Beth's experience doing, you know, what she did, and it came out a bit modified because we were looking at a different population than, than she did. Um, so we sat around a multi-head scope. We talked about some cases. I had everyone bring a case, bring three cases, actually. Um, a case they thought was not steatohepatitis, a case they had no question was steatohepatitis, and something that fell in between. And that formed the basis of the study set that we sent around. And so we, we talked about the lesions um, and, you know, kept track of how we were evaluating these things. And then everybody kind of went home and we, we sent this box of slides around twice. Um, and that, that became that paper. Now, the whole score, um, the the non the the NAFLD activity score, it was both a it was kind of a serendipitous creation in a certain sense. Um, 
I had told the steering committee early on that I did not want them taking all the numbers that we were going to give them and add them all up in some sort of, you know, to create this monster score um, that would be meaningless histologically. Uh, and they all laughed. I said it would be like adding ALT to alkaline phosphatase. And, and they appreciated <laughs> that because nobody would do that, right? They're different things. Or even worse, the ALT to the sodium. But, you know, what the statisticians turned to us and said, you know, we can't use just one thing to track what happens to patients in a clinical trial. We need to come up with a composite endpoint. So from so we took the numbers that we had generated in these two rounds of, we, we sent the box around twice. So we had all these numbers and part of the deal was to say, okay, put a diagnosis on this case. And we, we did statistical magic on it. And out of that fell this score. Now, originally, well, fibrosis would have been part of it too, because that was significantly associated with the diagnosis. but. There's a paradigm in fat in chronic liver disease that you separate fibrosis, which is an outcome from the other lesions, which are sort of the business end of producing the fibrosis. Uh, so, so the three things that came out most significantly related to diagnosis were fat, the amount of fat, the amount of lobular inflammation and the amount of ballooning. And that became the NAS. Um, and and at the time, of course, we just, I, we published it as a methods paper because we needed to, we needed to have something to refer to when, as we were building our other things, you know, to get it out there in a defined form, but it was picked up by everyone. And so that's why it kind of exploded. Um, and you know, at the time, we had no idea that it might be related to disease progression or outcome or, or, or that it would be useful in a clinical trial. You know, none of that, all of that was in the future. As it turns out, it is useful for all of those things. But that was, you know, that was more luck than anything else. Um, and, you know, and, and things got left out that probably shouldn't have. It turns out portal inflammation was more important than we thought it was. And, you know, and it kind of, we kind of pushed it to the side. We didn't have a very good way of evaluating it, but even the, the crude little tool we created turns out to be pretty important. So, so it, you know, it was, it was, it's always been collegial. The, the National Clinical Research Network is, was the best experience I've had with doing these networks. We were all we were all really interested in working together and we worked together well. And, you know, we meet at least up until the pandemic, we met four times a year in person. Most of us would get together around a multi-headed scope to do the scoring for the, for the network. And we've scored, I don't know, like 6,500 biopsies over, you know, 17 years, whatever it's been. Um, That's it's a lot of incredible cases. data set. An incredible data set. That's so, awesome. yeah, and it's it's turned out to be incredibly valuable. From your experience in this project, can you kind of give us some philosophical insight on you know how to how to come up with classification systems and what happens when you do? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, I think of these the same way you might think of as a, a ruler, right? They're just a measuring stick. Um, 
So, so a good classification system, a good ruler has markings that are easy to see. So, so you can tell where they are. Um, and so, for example, with fibrosis, we have really good places where, you know, we divide the stages. Um, basically, all staging systems are the same for, for fibrosis. Um, there's no fibrosis at one end. There's cirrhosis at the other. There's some fibrosis, which is expanding the portal area or coming out around the veins, but it's not yet connecting. It's not making, it's not touching anything. And then there's bridging. So you have touching, but it's not cirrhosis yet. So we have some really clear, de clearly defined points. Those are the best if you can do that. Um, a lot of the scoring systems that we have are not quite so clearly defined, but that's a that's something you should try to do. The other thing that you need to do is make sure that the scoring system actually um, captures the range of pathology, right? So you can create a ruler where all of the cases, you know, it goes from zero to seven, but everything's falling down on zero and one. Well, that's not a very good ruler. That's basically tell you new presence and absence and, and doesn't doesn't help you doesn't say anything about the pathology. So you have to, to re, you know, so, so rulers that work for one disease might not work for another. So that's one thing. Although being able to use the same ruler for different diseases. So if, if you're evaluating interface hepatitis across several different kinds of liver disease, using the same ruler gives you some, some sense of, you know, this versus that this is mild. That's not, um, it doesn't always work though and things look a little different and so definitions wander you you try and and when you describe your scoring systems a lot of a lot of times as pathologists we divide the world into mild moderate and severe or well moderately and poorly differentiated without much thought as to what that means or you know where we're drawing the lines and actually they're reasonably reproducible because, you know, we all have kind of this sense of what's bad and what's not. And, you know, you can be one of these people who it's everything in the middle. Uh, but, you know, if you, if you sort of understand the spectrum of the disease, then, you know, you can kind of divide that into thirds and do a pretty good job at it. And it's actually modestly reproducible. Um, but if you're, if you're trying to create something um, that you can translate to other people or other situations, you want to be a little bit more detailed than that, ideally. And the other thing is that I've seen the problems with scoring systems is that people sometimes use numbers. So like, well, like when doing lobular inflammation, we'll say so many foci per 20 X field, which is great. Um, you know, you, you have to deal with the nuance of what does a focus mean, <laughs> which most people don't. Uh, they don't define it very well, uh, but at least you've got some structure there. But then they'll do things like, okay, you'll say less than one, two to four, five to ten. What happen is, happens if the average is four and a half or, or one and a half? You really shouldn't leave those gaps there. <laughs> you know, we don't, you know, if it's an average, it's going to fall in the middle sometimes. And, and so you have to watch those mind the gap, right? You have to watch, watch those places. So your, your scoring system includes all of the possibilities. And, and that's, that's the other thing is that when you're, when you're looking at 
slides and things, um, usually you're kind of targeting the, the 90 percent of the population, but there's always going to be that 10 percent of cases that just don't fit very well. And so you have to kind of decide what to do about them. There's different ways of creating composite scoring systems, too. Um, I had a nice slide that I, I put together for something where I kind of analyzed the different different scoring systems. You can there are scoring systems that are progressive so so that, you know, you have uh, a set of features and feature A is the most common and then you, you add feature B and that's the next, you know, one up and feature C, uh, but you never see C without B or A, you know, kind of thing. Um, so there are different ways of combining the information that you have to get more power out of the out of whatever analysis you're going to do. So you mentioned earlier that you know COVID has disrupted some of this work, and obviously, I don't think anyone can think of any aspect of life that hasn't changed in the last year and a half. But yeah. Tell tell us what, and, and you you mentioned earlier too that you know research in the NIH is really driven by what patients are being studied and the patients that come mm -hmm. there, how has, how has the NIH changed during COVID? And, and I know you've posted a little bit on social media about the autopsy service and, right. and COVID. Yeah. So tell, tell us a little bit about those things. So, um, you know, the shutdown came suddenly for us as it did for everyone else. Uh, you know, one week we were all here and the next week they threw 90% of the people off campus. Um, they shut down, basically all of the research labs that, you know, except for ones that were deemed, um, you know, potentially related to COVID, um, you know, you were, you were limit, you were severely limited to, to what you could do during those first few weeks. Um, and, you know, and that included the physicians. So most of the physicians were sent home too. Um, I have, an office all to myself. So I was able to basically come and in every day and I never actually worked from home. I mean, I, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I was here every day. Um, anyway, that, you know, that, so that was sort of the practical aspect of things. And one of the things, the way it affected the hospital is like it affected other place, other hospitals, but instead of filling up our hospital with COVID patients, we did, we do have a unit that takes care of patients um, who are infected, but uh, they basically sent all the other patients home, right? And they severely restricted the number of patients who could be admitted in order to make sure that we could distance everybody and not overwhelm the services. And, you know, we had reduced nursing and reduced physicians. And, and so in order to make sure that the patients could still be taken care of, even though they were few and far between, um, they, you know, severely limited the number of patients that we could have here. Um, and but so the whole autopsy thing, though, um, at first we thought, well, OK, you know, we're, we're going to be admitting COVID patients. They're going to die and we're going to be doing autopsies. So we started to get ready. I started to think about, well, what would that mean? We do have a, an autopsy suite that is designed for this purpose. Um, we had um, you know, positive airflow purifiers that uh, we could wear, um, but they were 20 years old. They still worked, um, but they were these old, you know, 
huge battery fanny pack kind of things that you know you wear them for three hours they're they're a real pain so we ordered we ordered the things that the rest of the hospital was getting and and those took a while to come of course because everybody was ordering them um but one of the one of the uh as it turned out the patients that we admitted here were not at the sort of end of life icu sort of patients they were mostly patients who were sort of moderately ill hospitalized but not necessarily intubated um and one of our critical care docs was very interested in um he's a virologist by research uh, training so he was very interested in exploring the virology of, of coronavirus um he'd been doing work on ebola and so had all of those facilities sort of at his uh, fingertips um, and they're even more extreme than what we use for coronavirus and so he he called me up and said you know would you guys be able to do autopsies if we were if we recruited them to the nih and i said i think so yes <laughs> we would have to talk about what that looked like but um you know because they wanted to collect tissue and autopsy was you know nobody's was doing biopsies on these patients of any sort except for bronchoalveolar lavages and so it was a way to get tissue and um so it took a while to set everything up but we started doing autopsies in i want to say mid late april and we've done 45 of them over the last year only two were nih patients both of whom one died here at the clinical center and one um one died uh elsewhere and came kind of came back for an autopsy um and there have been a couple of papers that have been published so far probably the biggest one is is amongst the many tissues that we collected for research out of these autopsies we collected salivary glands which is not something that we've done routinely but we had a uh, guy in the dental institute who was very interested in um, coronavirus colonization or infection of salivary glands and in saliva and everything so he had a protocol already to collect saliva and look at the virus there so we worked with him and and he got a nature medicine paper out of it so that was pretty good um and so now we're we're kind of working on our major paper which is going to be sort of viral mostly viral things over the cohort um, from multiple tissues and we developed inside to hybridization and immunohistochemistry tools um, like many institutions did um, so those will be part of that magnum opus for me it's been rewarding because you know you you want to be as a physician you really want to be able to do something to help and so this was a real positive way that we could help what turned out to be interesting about salivary glands in patients that have covid um well first of all there's there's viral persistence in salivary glands that lasts longer than you think um and most of the paper was actually devoted towards uh you know single cell rna transcriptional analysis which is why it got into nature medicine actually it wasn't based on the pathology um and so you know but he was able to do inside to hybridization and we did em and and other things to demonstrate viral presence in um in salivary glands that we had gotten from 
uh, some of the patients who had died, um, some of whom were, you know, were, were probably negative by the usual testing of, of uh, you know, nasal swabs and things, um, but they still had replicative virus in their, in their salivary glands. So, so that was, that was the sort of the big message is that it's a reservoir and, and uh, so something to be aware of, even if you think you're past the point where you're infected, you, you may still be infected. You may not be able to transmit the disease and so easy anymore, but you're still infected. So I've, I've followed a, a handful of publications that have espoused identifying the virus by EM only to be questioned. And I, there was a really nice paper on this in the Lancet. Mm-hmm. What's been your experience? I, things that I've seen on EM that look like virus are really obvious and cells that are positive are loaded. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that yeah. what you've seen in yeah. salivary gland? I mean, if you're, you know, if you're luck, lucky to find um, the right cell, the, the problem is, is not every cell is necessarily infected. And so it can be a bit of a, a hunt. Um, but I think, you know, I think you're right. Where, where it's been convincing, there have been multiple virions in, um, when I say it's in one of the vacuoles, the endoplasmic reticulum or something like that, that's uh, where they're just loaded. And so, and they're all the same size. And so it's pretty easy to say, okay, those are, those are viral particles. But I, perhaps like you, I've, I've always kind of looked, you know, is that really a, you know, when they show two or three, I'm never quite sure, are we really looking at the right thing? And especially some of the papers that were published really early, you know, they were the right size, they were kind of the right morphology, but is it real or not? And that was, that was the tricky part. Um, you know, and it's, it's been um, challenging to find virus outside the lungs. Um, it's, but it persists longer than people think. I mean, at least you can find by PCR, you can find sequence um, weeks after infection, you know, and, uh, and the, the levels generally go down with time as you might expect. Um, and you can find it outside there, but, but there's a couple orders of magnitude difference usually between what's in the lungs and what's everywhere else. So, um, you need to use pretty sensitive methodology. Um, but the only other place then that has those pretty high, uh, amounts are the We've taken some samples from the nasopharynx that tends to be pretty high, um, and and salivary glands. How do you think that viral persistence in places like the salivary glands is playing a role in patients with long COVID? And what do you see that's going on at the NIH to evaluate patients with long COVID? I don't know that. I don't know if the NIH is going to be part of this or not, but you know, there's a real interest now in studying patients who have persistent symptoms after recovery. And there are a whole host of different things, respiratory problems, fatigue, muscle problems, neurological problems, um, cardiac problems, a lot of different systems seem to be affected. And, you know, what's, what the mechanisms are that are causing this? And, you know, what, what does it, what does it mean? And, 
you know, is it really going to last for a long time or is it going to fade after a year or what? Um, we've had a couple patients come through who had COVID early on in um, 2020, right? So they're a year out. And they'd come in with respiratory problems and they'd get an open lung biopsy and you'd see all of this scarring. And it's probably the, you know, diffuse alveolar damage from back last April now just scarred down. And now they've got other stuff on top of that. But, but I have a feeling that there are a lot of people out in the world walking around with you know, lungs that are scarred to varying degrees and you know, maybe, maybe they can still do everything they need to do, but don't have the, the capacity anymore to write be a major athlete or whatever. And maybe they'll, they'll be more susceptible to pneumonias or, or, you know, when you have a scar, it's not a good thing. So I, you know, I think this is going to chase us for years, years and years and years. Um, but there is, there, there was a, a big, um, uh request for proposals or you know a big pot of money basically um that was advertised they're trying to set up these big trying to set up a huge consortium effort to look at long these long haulers from a whole host of different aspects um one of which is is autopsy so so there was there was money out there for some um you know, people who are willing to do autopsies and collect tissue for the whole consortium. Well, it's been really great to catch up with you. This is so fascinating yeah. about all the things you're doing. And, and uh, it's fun. I yeah. really appreciate your insights on classification systems and all sorts of things, pathology. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's fun. I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm really glad that they have a residency program here at the NIH. They, they really don't for the other areas. They just have fellows. Um, we're the only residency program, which makes it a little bit lonely for our residents. But um, I, it, it's nice to have that teaching aspect, that mentorship, um, coaching, whatever, you know, that you do with um, people who are just starting out in the profession. It's really exciting, actually, to see them develop and go out into the world and be successful so so that's been a really fun part too it's been okay. really great to catch up with you really yeah. good to see you all right well have fun thanks a lot yeah bye Support for the Free PathPod podcast comes from listeners who like it and share it with their friends. So go ahead, send someone the link. And be sure to subscribe to PathPod wherever you download your podcasts. PathPod is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not medical advice. As always on the podcast, any views expressed are solely those of the person speaking and do not necessarily represent their employers, their affiliated institutions, affiliated professional organizations, other speakers on the program, their friends, their families, their pets, or anyone involved in the production and distribution of this podcast. Thanks for listening to PathPod. Pod.